So I'm going to read, we'll just read through, because some people are here for the first time, we'll read through uh, this short introduction here. It's called Setting the Scene. I'm not sure how important this is. Actually, you know what? Our time is pretty short, and, and there's so much to cover here, so it's not really of that much importance to know the whole... The Bhagavad Gita really is not, is not really the story that's important. It's the teachings in it, right? So maybe we'll, we'll skip that. And the first chapter really was the, uh, the events leading up to a battle. And in this battle, there was, uh, it's, it's two sides. It was a world war about 5,000 years ago. And there's, there was two sides to it of the same family were fighting against each other in this world war. And so uh, um, Arjuna he didn't know what to do. He was freaking out because on the other side, which he was about to fight, he had to fight this other side, um, were so many of his friends and relatives and people he loved very much. Uh, but at the same time, he couldn't. But if, if that other side would have won, it would have been bad news for the world. So it was, a, it was a war that had to be fought. You know, sometimes people look at, they think violence is automatically, because it's violence, it's, it's wrong. But somehow, sometimes violence is necessary. You know, like if somebody's, uh, uh, you know, if, for example, if um, people were going to take over our country and, and uh, you know, force everyone into slavery or something, we would have to um, fight. And we have to fight for what's right because slavery is bad, right? So um, sometimes war is necessary or fighting is necessary. And it's the, the, the right thing to do. So in this, in this instance, that, that's what the case was. But at the same time, so many of Arjuna's friends and relatives were on the other side. So he was feeling like he didn't know what to do. Okay? So that's kind of, I think we've, that's where we finished off last time. So that was chapter, chapter one. Um, no, that was an introduction. That was in the introduction. That was I was just setting the scene. Yeah. yeah. So chapter two. So we'll read through the text that, and then um, I'll just go back after. There's 63 verses here, I think. No, 72. And then after that, we'll read back and we'll speak on some of the points. Now, this, chapter two is, is is where the instruction actually or the teachings actually begin. If it's too cold, you know, you can adjust it. Um, maybe just turn it off and it gets hot again, then you can, yeah. Now that the sun's gone down, it's probably going to be all right. Okay, so I'll read through this. Um, I'll try to read through the whole thing. We'll see how, see how it goes. should be about, I don't know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes or something. Sanjaya said, Seeing Arjuna full of compassion and very sorrowful, his eyes brim, brimming with tears, Madhusudana, Krishna, spoke the following words. So Arjuna was perplexed and his eyes brim, brim, brimming with tears for the reasons I just explained. Yeah, he was going to fight his relatives and everything. The Supreme Person, Bhagavan, said, Dear Arjuna, how have these impurities come upon you? They are not 
at all befitting a man who knows the progressive values of life. They do not lead to higher planets, but to infamy. O son of Prita, do not yield to this degrading impotence. It does not become you. Give up such petty weakness of heart and arise, O chastiser of the enemy. Arjuna said, O Madhusudana, Krishna, how can I counteract with arrows in battle men like Bhisma and Drona, who are worthy of my worship? It is, better, it is better to live in this world by begging than to live at the cost of the lives of the great souls who are my teachers. Even though they are avaricious, they are nonetheless superiors. If they are killed, our spoils will be tainted with blood. Nor do we know which is better, conquering them or being conquered by them. The sons of Dhritarashtra, whom if we kill, we should, we should not care to live, are now standing before us on this battlefield. Now I am confused about my duty and have lost all composure because of weakness. In this condition I am asking you to tell me clearly what is best for me. Now I am your disciple and a soul surrendered unto you. Please instruct me. I can find no means to drive away this grief which is drying up my senses. I will not be able to destroy it even if I win an unrivaled kingdom on earth with sovereignty like the, demi, like the demigods in heaven. Sanjaya said, Having spoken thus, Arjuna, chastiser of the enemies, told Krishna, Govinda, I shall not fight, and fell silent. O descendant of Bharata, at that time Krishna, smiling in the midst of both armies, spoke the following words to the grief script to the grief-stricken Arjuna. The Blessed Lord said, While speaking learned words, you are mourning for what is not worthy of grief. Those who lament, sorry, those who are wise lament neither for the living nor the dead. Never was there a time when I did not exist, nor you, nor all these kings, nor in the future shall any of us cease to be. As the embodied soul continually passes in this body from boyhood to youth to old age, the soul similarly passes into another body at death. A self-realized soul is not bewildered by such a change. O son of Kunti, the non-permanent appearance, non appearance of happiness and distress and their disappearance in due course are like the appearance and disappearance of winter and summer seasons. They arise from sense perception, O scion of Brata, and one must learn to tolerate them without being disturbed. O best among men, Arjuna, the person who is not disturbed by happiness and distress and is steady in both is certainly eligible for liberation. Those who are seers of the truth have concluded that of the non-existent there is no endurance and of the existent there is no cessation. This seers have concluded by studying the nature of both. Know that that which pervades the entire body is indestructible. No one is able to destroy the imperishable soul. Only the material body of the indestructible, immeasurable, and eternal living being is subject to destruction. Therefore, oh, therefore fight, O oh descendant of Bharata. He who thinks that the living entity is the slayer or that he is slain does not understand. One who is in knowledge knows that the self slays nor is not slain. For the soul there is never birth nor death, nor having once been does he ever cease to be. He is unborn, eternal, ever-existing, and un undying and primeval. 
He is not slain when the body is slain. O Partha, how can a person who knows that the soul is indestructible, unborn, eternal, and immutable, kill anyone or cause anyone to kill? As a person puts on new garments, giving up old ones, similarly the soul accepts new material bodies, giving up the old and useless ones. The soul is never, can never be cut into pieces by any weapon, nor can it be burned by fire, nor moistened by water, nor withered by the wind. The individual soul is unbreakable and insoluble, and can never be burned nor dried. He is everlasting, all-pervading, unchangeable, immovable, and eternally the same. It is said that the soul is invisible, inconceivable, immutable, and unchangeable. Knowing this, you should not grieve for the body. If however you think the soul is perpetually born and always dies, still you have no reason to lament, O mighty armed. For one who has taken birth, death is certain, and for one who is dead, birth is certain. Therefore, in the unavoidable discharge of your duty, you should not lament. All created beings are unmanifest in their beginning, manifest in their interim state, and unmanifest again when they are annihilated. So what need is there for lamentation? Some look at the soul as amazing, some describe him as amazing, and some hear of him as amazing, while others, even after hearing about him, cannot understand him at all. O descendant of Bharata, he who dwells in the body is eternal and can never be slain. Therefore, you, de you need not grieve for any creature. Considering your specific duty as a kasatriya or warrior, you should not you should know that there is no better engagement for you than fighting on religious principles, and so there is no need for hesitation. O Partha, happy are the Kasatriyas whom such fighting opportunities come unsought, opening for them the doors of the heavenly planets. If, however, you do not fight this religious war, then you will certainly incur sins for neglecting your duties and thus lose your reputation as a fighter. People will always speak of your infamy, and for one who has been honored, dishonor is worse, worse than death. The great generals who have highly esteemed your name and fame will think that you have left the battlefield out of fear only, and thus they will consider you a coward. <clears throat> your enemies will describe you in many unkind words and scorn your ability. What could be more painful for you? O son of Kunti, either you will be killed on the battlefield and attain the heavenly planets, or you will conquer and enjoy the earthly kingdom. Therefore get up and fight with determination. Do thou fight for the sake of fighting without considering happiness, distress, loss, or gain, victory, or defeat. And by doing so, you shall never, occur, you sh you shall never incur sin. Thus I have declared to you the analytical knowledge of Sankhya philosophy. Now listen to the knowledge of yoga, whereby one works without fruit of result. O son of Pritha, when you act by such intelligence, you can free yourself from the bondage of works. Okay, this is about halfway through the chapter, so I'm going to just give a little bit of a commentary on what we've gone so far, and then we can continue a little bit further. So, what happened so far is that, um, so Arjuna was freaking out because he's supposed to kill all these people, right? And so, uh, Krishna right away, he made it so he could see things clearly. He, he, he explained to Arjuna the actual situation of what's going on in the battle in the battle. What he sees as people, as bodies, are not the actual people. 
The person is actually the soul or the life force within the body. The body is just a suit of clothes that the person has. So, as Krishna described there in the Bhagavad Gita, the soul is cannot be moistened by water, withered, withered by the wind, burned by fire. Uh, it cannot be killed in any way. In other words, the soul is eternal. There is no, be there is no beginning and there is no end. It's all, the soul has always existed. In other words, you have always, always existed. You, 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 me. We've always existed. There's never a time when we don't. We we never exist. We didn't exist. Uh, you can remember uh, times. Um, you know, maybe m my first memory that I can remember. I was about three years old. I don't remember before three. How about you guys? Yeah. But just because you don't remember earlier than three doesn't mean you didn't exist then. You see. So, like, our mothers can all attest that, to the fact that we existed at zero and one and two, right, and three. And, um, and she, she can also attest that we were kicking in the womb, right? And we were alive in the womb, kicking and, and sometimes active and sometimes not so active, right? And uh, so even before that, you know, we existed in the womb. And, and even before the womb, we existed. We may not remember, but we existed somewhere else, in some other body. And so we'd all, we'd have, we have always existed. And the death of this body will not be the, the end of us. We will continue to be conscious and aware and living, being alive. So this is um, what Krishna is teaching Arjuna here in the first chapter, is that actually um, there will be no killing going on. The, he said, the self slays not, nor is slain. The self can never be killed in any way, you see? So therefore, you need not grieve. You don't, you don't need to worry that someone's going to die. Okay? So that's, that's the main thing. That's a big bomb he laid there, right? It's a huge... I mean, in, in, our, in our classes, um, we often quote from the second chapter where Krishna clearly... Um, tells Arjuna that um, the, the difference between the body and the self. Um, seeing seeing the, body, the difference between the body and the self is the basis of yoga. It's the basis of all spiritual practice. Um, it's the basis for uh, doing what we do, uh, all our decisions in life. If we, if we don't understand this first basic principle of yoga or spiritual practice, then um, everything else is built upon a lie. You know, my goals in life, what I should be striving for, um, uh, these kinds of things are all based on an illusion. Okay, So it, it changes really, if you understand this, then it changes the view of um, um, Life, really, you know, if we if we think that we're the body, if we think that I'm nothing more than this suit of clothes, then I began at a certain point and I'll end at a certain certain point in life is this 80 years or whatever. If I'm lucky to live 80 years, that's life, right? So then we base all our decisions on, um, you know, how I'm going to enjoy this 80 years to the best of my ability, right? But if we understand that actually this is just a suit of clothes that I have on, 
when I take off the clothes, I'm still going to exist. Then that changes everything, right? Because now I understand that um, uh, I continue to exist after I leave the body, and therefore I need to um, act in, an, in a way that is beneficial for my whole life, my eternal self-interest. If I, say if I knew an atomic bomb was going to drop on Brisbane tonight, right? My way of what I'd be doing during the day, like, and there's no escaping it, right? Like I knew it was going to drop, and like, in other words, I, knew, I know I'm going to die tonight. Then my, my, the way I'm going to live today is going to be a whole lot different than if I knew, if I thought I was going to live 80 years, right? The things I'd be doing would be completely different because I know that my life is going to be over soon, so, you know, I wouldn't be, in other words, I wouldn't be going to work, <laughs> to earn money, I wouldn't be, care about paying off my mortgage, I wouldn't care about so many different things that I care about now because I, I know that my life is not going to, well, I don't know that, but I think that my life is not going to end tonight, right? So, um, in the same way, the yogi, he knows that life is an eternal reality, it's not a temporary thing. Therefore, his whole outlook on everything is completely different than one who thinks that I'm just a body, you see? So, um, uh, and it's really the basis for all spiritual practice, right? Spiritual practice, I mean, there is, there is spiritual practice that, um, you know, people, they, 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 they take on a whole lot of austerities so they can enjoy later on in heaven or something like that, right? So, so I suffer now, and then later on in the future, then I can enjoy, right? They're also thinking that life is not an 80-year thing. They're also, they're also considering the fact that um, I'm going to exist after this body. They, they, it might not be so clear in their minds that they're going to exist after the body, but they have some idea, and therefore they um, uh, work towards that goal, right? So that's one way of looking at it. But another way of looking at it is that, um, and this is a subject I'm not going to go into too much right now because it's not, we're not at this part of the, the book yet, but um, spiritual life or spiritual practice, the practice of yoga, is not simply to attain happiness in some future life, in, in other words, when this body finishes. It's also to experience um, the highest happiness you can experience uh, right now in this life. So there's no, it's not a, uh, a thing where I suffer now and I, I'm going to enjoy later. It's actually purifying, the, the process of yoga is purifying our enjoyment, therefore, so we enjoy um, in a very high-class way. In other words, in a way where there is um, more uh, joy and less unhappiness and suffering. Um, in this world, people strive for all kinds of happiness and they en end up suffering a lot because of their attempts. Because the happiness that they strive for also causes all kinds of suffering. If anybody's ever had a broken relationship, they know exactly what I'm talking about, or hungover, or whatever, right? There's so, we, we, we strive for, we strive to enjoy this world, and then it's like the more, as the more we try, the more we suffer, you see? So yoga is, the process of bhakti yoga especially, is a process of um, 
enjoying life, happiness, intel intelligently without the, the bummer part of it, you know? You, dr you, you get drunk at night, you know what's coming the next morning, right? <laughs> but um, if you go to a kirtan at night, how do you, you wake up in the morning, you're like, fuck, I'm glad I did that. You know, you feel good about it, right? It's not a, it's not a suffering type of enjoyment, is it? It's very enjoyable. And so we, the practice of bhakti yoga is increasing this happiness, increasing the taste that you get from um, connection with, with God. You see, so this is this is, um, and this is pure happiness, right? And this this happiness just grows and grows and grows. The more the more that you um, uh, engage in the practice of bhakti yoga, the more you appreciate it. The happier you become, the more. Um, appreciative you become of what you have and uh, the life of the material the materialistic life that causes so much suffering um, it loses its teeth its pull you know we know that we're gonna get drunk in the we, if when we get drunk we're gonna get really sick in the morning and it's gonna feel like shit but because we don't have a higher happiness or higher taste uh, it pulls us in right but when you when you experience a higher taste, then then the ha those so-called happiness that has so much suffering attached to it, it loses its teeth because you're experiencing something better. Just like if I have a, a you know if I have some bread and butter for dinner every night, I'm going to be quite attached to that bread and butter because if I don't have that bread and butter, I got nothing. But if somebody comes along and gives me a wonderful, you know, vegetarian meal like we had last night. You guys, you guys missed it last night, huh? It was really good. Did you say this? Yeah. Well, no, you had today, there's some leftovers actually. Yeah, it was good, yeah? So, so, there was like, it was rice and there was curd, like curd, tomato-y stuff. Yeah, that's good. We'll, we'll have some after. And, and then there was um, like cookies and yeah, it was really good, right? But so if we had, if bread and butter was our dinner, we wouldn't, you know, we, we, would, we wouldn't care at all about it. We just, who cares? Let's just have this awesome thing, right? So that's what it's, bhakti yoga is like that. We, 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 we get a higher taste um, and, and then the lower taste just falls away, okay? So it's a matter of, really the practice of bhakti yoga is a matter of um, in, just engaging the activities to increase that happiness that comes from kirtan chanting Krishna's names, meditating on Krishna, and so on. Okay? So, um, so there's many points here that we read so far, and, and uh, we can go over again. I mean, if there's any questions, I guess people can ask later. Uh, but we'll just keep continue reading for the rest of the chapter, okay? We're about halfway through. Text 39. There... Thus I have declared to you the analytical knowledge of Sankhya philosophy. Now listen to the knowledge of yoga, whereby one works without fruitive result, O son of Pritha. When you act by such intelligence, you can free yourself from the bondage of works. In this endeavor there is no loss or diminution, and a little advancement on this path can protect one from the most dangerous type of fear. Those who are on, the, on this path are resolute in purpose, and their aim is one. O beloved child of the Kurus, the, intelli 
The intelligence of those who are irre irresolute is many-branched. Men of small knowledge are very much attached to the flowery words of the Vedas, which recommend various fruitive activities for elevation to heavenly planets, result in good birth, power, and so forth. Being desirous of sense gratification and opulent life, they say there is nothing more than this. In the minds of those who are too attached to sense enjoyment and material opulence, and those who are bewildered by such things, the resolute determination of devotional service to the Supreme Lord does not take place. So, there's a difference between the um, uh, heavenly enjoyments and devotional service to the Supreme Lord. They, um, the heavenly planets are not the spiritual world. There's a difference. The heavenly planets are part of the material world. In this universe, there are many, many planets. Um, it's described in the Vedas like a bucket of mustard seeds. It's how many planets there are in this world. Have you guys ever seen how small mustard seeds are? Imagine a bucket of those. You can't even count. It's almost like grains of sand on the beach, right? There's so many planets uh, in, uh, in this material sphere. So some planets are quite boring, not much happening. Some places are um, heavenly planets where there is a lot of enjoyment and very little suffering. And we have middle planets like this planet we're on here, which is um, a, a kind of a, a small amount of both pleasure and pain, right? In generally speaking. Like right now, we're not feeling overly blissed out. Well, we're not feeling, we've, we've, got some, we've got some pain, but it's not causing us that much distress, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and there's other planets where the suffering is increased and, and the, um, the happiness, is, the pleasure is decreased quite a lot. So this is called hellish planets. All these places are temporary places. It's not, it's not like somebody, when somebody goes to a hellish planet, they stay there forever. They have some karma to pay off and... They're there for a while, and then they pay it off, and they, they, they go up to another planet. So, um, so there's all this stuff going on, and, but in the heavenly planets, the, um, the happiness of the residents of the heavenly planet is not spiritual happiness. It's still material happiness. The difference between spiritual and material happiness is that in material happiness, I'm thinking about myself, my enjoyment. And spiritual happiness, or yoga, is, is um, not I-centered. It's God-centered. So that's the consciousness of a yogi. So, um, and so that's what Krishna is saying here: is in the minds of those who are too attached to sense enjoyment and material opulence, those who are bewildered by such things, the resolute determination for devotional service to the Supreme Lord does not take place, because they haven't experienced the higher taste yet. You see, so. It's more or less like they, they, they don't see the, you know, the example I gave of the, the bread and butter. Is they're eating their bread and butter. They're getting some enjoyment from material sense enjoyment and opulence or whatever. But they don't see that if they look in another direction, there's this whole plate of food. So the, the, the resolute determination to eat that food is, does not take place because they barely, they don't really know it exists. You know, and or they might know it exists. They might have heard of it, but they they don't have a taste for it. 
you see. So they, um, they're still interested in the lower pleasures of material sense enjoyment and opulence and these things. Okay? All right. The Vedas, the Vedas mainly deal with the three modes of material nature. Rise above these modes, O Arjuna. Be transcendental to all of them. Be free from all dualities, from all anxieties, for gain and safety, and be established in the self. That's a capital S. All purposes that are served by a small pond can at once be served by the great reservoirs of water. Similarly, all the purposes of the Vedas can be served by one who knows the purpose behind them. One who, you have the right to perform your prescribed duty, but you are not entitled to the fruits of action. Never consider yourself to be the cause of the results of your activities, and never be too attached to not doing your duty. Be steadfast in yoga, O Arjuna. Perform your duty and abandon all attachment to success or failure. Such evenness of mind is called yoga. Okay, so yoga, it's maybe because the word yoga is mentioned so much here, it's, it's maybe a good time to mention what yoga means. <laughs> Many people think that yoga means like stretching exercises. And which is true, which is, that's, that's part of a system of yoga called Ashtanga Yoga. It's not the actual meaning of yoga. The purpose of, me, of yoga is to realize God. And once a person's realized, God realized, then their, um, their life is one with God. In other words, they're, um, uh, they're one in love, one in will, one in purpose. They're completely united. It's like an, they're like an extension of God. They're a pure medium of God. When, when a person has reached this state, he is a yogi. You know, he's, there's no, he has no more self-interest. He's not interested because of the great taste that he's experiencing. He's not interested in uh, the lower pleasures of material sense enjoyment. Okay, so th when 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 um, uh, Krishna is saying, "Oh Arjuna, perform your duties, perform your duty, and abandon all attachment to successes." success or failure, this is yoga. When a person, a person who's, he, he lives in this world, he's, he's doing all kinds of things, like in Arjuna's situation, Arjuna is a, his, his role in this world, he's, he's a warrior. But he's not, warriors, generally, uh, materialistic warriors, would be fighting for, um, out of fear of loss, or, um, uh, the hope of gain, right? So they're fighting for some purpose for themselves. But um, Krishna's, Krishna's saying, you should do your duty, but not for these reasons. You should do them for me. You see? This is yoga. Doing, doing work in, in for, the purpose of, for the purpose of pleasing God. This is this is this is uh, what a yogi does. A yogi once realized once he's realized God, he doesn't just sit and do nothing. You see, you must you must act, and and when a person is self-realized, then they know that their eternal um, function is to be engaged in the loving service of the supreme Lord. They know this as an actual fact, as a reality. 
So therefore they act on that knowledge and they engage in um, activities for God. Whereas the materialist who is interested, who is overly attached to material sense enjoyment, acts only for his own pleasure. Okay? So the, the process of yoga, the whole yoga system, meditation, yoga sanas, everything, is meant to change our consciousness from being I-centered to being God-centered. So this may seem like a huge ocean to cross. It may seem like we're very far away from that. So um, this is the, why the process of yoga exists, is to bring us to this. If, if, if you apply the process, then it brings about these changes in you, and you become a yogi, you become fixed, one with the Supreme. How are you guys doing so far? You alright? Yeah, okay. O Dhananjaya, rid yourself of all fruit of activities by devotional service and surrender fully to that consciousness. Those who want to enjoy the fruits of their work are misers. A man engaged in devotional service rids himself of both good and bad karma, even in this life. Therefore, strive for yoga, O Arjuna, which is the art of all work. The wise engaged in devotional service take refuge in the Lord and free themselves from the cycle of birth and death by renouncing the fruits of action in the material world. In this way they can attain the state beyond all miseries. When your intelligence has thus passed out of the dense forest of delusion, you shall become indifferent to all that has been heard and all that is to be heard. When your mind is no longer disturbed by the flowery language of the Vedas, and when it remains fixed in the transcendent, sorry, I'm going to try to read that again. When your mind is no longer disturbed by the flowery language of the Vedas, and when it remains fixed in the trance of self-realization, then you will have attained the divine consciousness. Arjuna said, what are the symptoms of one whose consciousness is thus merged in transcendence? How does he speak and how and what is his language? How does he sit and how does he walk? The Blessed Lord said, O Partha, when a man gives up all varieties of sense desire which arise from mental concoction, and when his mind finds satisfaction in the self alone, then he is said to be in pure transcendental consciousness. One who is not disturbed in spite of the threefold miseries, who is not elated when there is happiness and who is free from attachment, fear, and anger, is called a sage of steady mind. He who is without attachment, who does not rejoice when he obtains good, nor lament when he obtains evil, is firmly fixed in perfect knowledge. One who is able to withdraw his sense is from sense objects, as a tortoise draws its limbs within the shell, is to be understood as truly situated in knowledge. The embodied soul may be restricted from sense enjoyment, though the taste for sense enjoyment, sorry, for sense objects remains. But ceasing such engagements by experiencing a higher taste, he is fixed in consciousness. The senses are so strong and impetuous, is that the right word? Impetuous? Impetuous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it means. What do you mean relentless? Yes. Yeah. 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 
or Juna, the senses are so strong and impetuous, O Arjuna, that they forcibly carry away the mind of even a man of discrimination who is endeavoring to control them. One who restrains his senses and fixes his consciousness upon me is known as a man of steady intelligence. While contemplation, sorry, while contemplating the objects of the senses, a person develops attachment for them. From such attachment, lust develops, and from lust, anger arises. From anger, delusion arises. From delusion, bewilderment of memory. When memory is bewildered, intelligence is lost. And when intelligence is lost, one falls down again into the material pool. One who can control his senses by practicing the regulated principles of freedom can obtain the complete mercy of the Lord and thus become free from all attachment and aversion. One who is, thus, one who is so situated in the divine consciousness, the threefold miseries of material existence exist no longer. In such a happy state, one, one's intelligence soon becomes steady. One, one who is not in transcendental consciousness can neither can have neither a controlled mind nor steady intelligence, without which there is no possibility of peace. And how can there be happiness without peace? As a boat on the water is swept away by a strong wind, even one of the senses on which the mind focuses can carry away a man's intelligence. Therefore, O mighty armed, one whose senses are restrained from their objects is certainly of steady intelligence. What is night for all beings in the time of awakening? I can't read today. What is night for all beings is the time of awakening for the self-controlled. And the time of awakening for all beings is the night for the introspective sage. A person who is not disturbed by the incessant flow of desires that enter like rivers into the ocean which is ever being filled but is always still, can alone achieve peace, and not the man who strives to satisfy such desires. A person who has given up all desires for sense gratification, who lives free from desires, who has given up all sense of proprietorship and is devoid of false ego, he alone can attain real peace. That is the way of the spiritually, spiritual and godly life, after attaining which a man is not bewildered. Being so situated, even at the hour of death, one can enter into the kingdom of God. Wow. There's like, I think that, that's like, this is like the summary of the whole Bhagavad Gita in chapter 2. I think if you just have chapter 2, then you got everything you need, I think. So, does anybody have any questions? Why is there a capital self? When there's a capital that refers to Krishna. First to God. Somewhere it said, I think it said, focus on the self. Yeah, be, on be established in the self, yeah. It says, um, I'll read that again. The Vedas, the Vedas mainly deal with the subject of the three modes of material nature. Rise above these modes, O Arjuna. Be transcendental to all of them. Be free from all dualities and from all anxieties for gain and safety. And be established in the self. With a capital S.
Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Be totally established in Krishna. Don't worry about anything else. Be free from all anxieties and just focus on Krishna. Nice. Sounds good. So that's what happens. You, you, you know, as you, as you progress in bhakti yoga, you experience more and more peace and less and less fear and less and less anxiety. The more you experience that Krishna is real and Krishna loves you, and you, you just, uh, the yogi just rests in that knowledge and that realization, and he's not worried about anything. Not worried about death, not worried about anything. Because he's just cool. You know? Everything's cool. No need to worry. Just gonna kill everyone and sleep all <laughs> That's basically what he's saying. That's what Krishna's saying. He's saying he's saying just you know, you're get you're getting all freaking you know, you're getting all this anxiety, you're crying, you're you're basically acting like a damn fool, not knowing that um you know, these people are not really who you think are other people are not really people. Your business, your eternal business is serving me, being in, fi fixed in, in me, resting in me, um, having your consciousness on me. And so, you know, everything else is just a passing show. It's not really, it's just temporary, you know, everything. It's not like, I mean, if you think right now, um, all those people that, in the Battle of that died in the Battle of Kurukshetra, does it really matter, like, now, whether if they lived another 20 years or not? <laughs> you know? Like, all the people that survived that battle are all dead, right? But they're, they're, that life that they were living, that they thought was so important, is long gone. We're all the, we're all the people from 100 years ago. Gone. You know? And they think, they think right now, at this time, everything's so important. We're looking a hundred years later, we're like, how important was this? It had no importance. It's all gone, right? Like I saw this cartoon once where it was like, um, there was four caskets, right? And four, no, four, four bones, like skeletons in a casket, right? All next to each other, that was a cartoon. And um, one casket, one, so, you know, it was a cartoon, so the, the, the skeleton was thinking, Fuck, I'm glad I was a vegetarian. And the other one was like, Fuck, I'm glad I didn't uh, go out drinking every night. Fuck, I'm glad I took my pills. You know? They're all dead. <laughs> it makes no difference, right? You, you know? Whatever, whatever happens, like, everything, all this passing stuff that happens is like, a hundred years from now, it's going to mean zilch, nothing. But we take it as such a big deal as right now, you see. But our real business is to be um, established in the self. That's the eternal relationship that we get to keep, you see. So what we do in this life actually matters if it's in connection with Krishna. Because that's, that is our eternal identity and eternal relationship. And that's what we get to keep when we leave this, work, this body. So... Um, uh, that's just, it's just like the example of the person who, who, who say if I thought I was going to die tonight, right? Um, I would, say if I was a, a, 
a major hedonist, right? If, if, if I thought I was going to die tonight, it would be chant Krishna's names, meditate on Krishna, and get ready to leave. But if I was a hedonist, uh, if my whole life was simply enjoying my senses, and I'm like, yes, I'm going to go rape whoever I can find. I'm going to go, um, you know, get so drunk and so fucked up on drugs that I'm going to have the best night ever, right? And then you wake up the next day, you didn't die. <laughs> and then you've got rape charges, you've got, you know, you've got a hangover from hell, you've got some addictions now, you know, you've got, you've got AIDS. <laughs> yeah. So, so if we know, if we know we're not going to die at the end of this life, then, you know, and we get to keep one thing, we should at least spend some of our time in this life. We should at least spend some of the time engaged in uh, working for that which we get to keep. Is that not intelligence? Is that not, you know, the most logical? <laughs> so, um, yeah, and every time you chant Krishna's name, that every time you do it, you get a little bit closer to Krishna. You're a little bit closer to self-realization. So, you know, nothing is lost. If you put stuff in your superannuation, you have billions of dollars at the end of it. It all gets lost as soon as you die. But, um, but when you leave your body, whatever you get to, whatever relationship you have with, however close you've gotten to God, that's what you get to keep. That's the only thing you get to keep. So actually life has a real purpose for the self-realized. It's not simply just, uh, you know, taking vitamins and trying to keep this body life forever, which is impossible. Exciting yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, the, the life of the, the, the materialist has no purpose. It all gets, it all gets taken away. It's like, it's like that example of like, you know, you're, you're going through a grocery store, um, you, you know you get these free shopping sprees in America, where you get like five minutes, you get to put everything in your basket, and then, and then, and then you get to, you know, you get to leave with those things you got in your basket, right? But if you knew there was somebody at the door taking all the, bat, all the stuff away when you got to the door, then you wouldn't be so enthusiastic getting all this stuff for your basket, right? Because you, you know you don't get to keep it anyway. So, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a charade, right? It's like you're imagining you get to keep it, but it all gets taken away. So, you know, a, a person of any kind of intelligence would not be so enthusiastic to get all this shit in this world, right? Because it all gets taken away, everything. All your health, all your good looks, all your, well, everything. It all, it's all gone. It all gets taken away. So, um, uh, the, the life of the person, the, the materialist, has absolutely no purpose whatsoever. It's meaningless. It's a charade. It's a game. It's pretending you have, you, pretending that what you're doing is worth anything. It's of any value. Because in time, it all gets just washed away. However, the transcendentalist, whatever uh, progress he makes, he gets to keep that. And even, even a little bit, a little bit of advancement on this path as it's, it's said in this um, chapter, it can free one from the greatest fear.
In this endeavor, there is no loss or diminution. There's no loss. Any, any endeavor towards yoga, there's no loss. You get to keep that. Krishna's saying right here, there's no loss or diminution. What does diminution mean? Like, diminishing, diminishing yeah, diminishing. And a little advancement on this path can protect one from the most dangerous type of fear. A little advancement on the path of bhakti yoga, you experience, I'm not this body. I know that um, uh, I can take shelter of God and He'll protect me. No need to worry. You see? This is not always there right away, but with a little advancement, when you come, when you, when you um, start to experience Krishna's care for you and love for you, and, um, you know, you, you have realizations of not being the body, you understand this, then you're freed from this fear. So much in this chapter is like, all these, every single one of these verses can, you know, we can talk about. But this is the, the, the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita is pretty much a um, pre, like a more or less a teaser for what's to come. And then it goes into more detail in, in the future chapters. And then in the, in the last few chapters, recaps what's being taught. So Krishna says what he's going to say, then he says it, then he says what he said. <laughs> and that's the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> so he tells Arjuna what he's going to tell him. Then he tells Arjuna. And he tells him what he told him. Okay, is that is that is that is that okay for tonight? Five thirty is about time. So we'll just have a little chant and then um, see you next week, hopefully. Yeah.
Is that you and all? We play that song yeah. every Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll do one more. My brother and my sister get the guitar. You play that one in Christmas song. Yeah, <laughs> it's like my favorite song. Oh. Uh -huh.